This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, a podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. You can subscribe and download episodes wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can follow us on our social media pages. And while you're at it, I would love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. I've got with me today, Rachel Allen. Hi, guys. And we are recording a podcast episode today on how to stop watching porn. And I will say it is our number one, like that's what picks us up number one in our SEO and our Google ads. And it has for like a year and a half that we've been tracking it. And, you know, sometimes we go on this podcast, we go into other rabbit holes and different topics. And this is really our niche specialty. This is what we do. These are the clients we're marketing to. So I thought we'd have just a conversation about what we recommend for clients and what that looks like for people who are recognizing that porn is problematic in their life or problematic in their relationship and have had unsuccessful attempts on their own to just stop watching porn. So welcome, Rachel. Yay. Yeah, I'm excited about this. We've done this for so long that like we don't actually talk about. Right this process very often. Yes. What do you do when you have a client who's like struggling to stop watching, struggling Mm -hmm. to like recognizing this is problematic behavior for them? And I did a podcast that released last week on pornography addiction, sex addiction, that type of stuff. I don't remember exactly the title that I gave it. And the way that we would see it is maybe the overall umbrella would be sex addiction And pornography addiction is one of the things under that umbrella that we look at. And I think sometimes that's how we're looking at it as CSATs and as clinicians. I think sometimes that's confusing for clients, right? Because they, sometimes porn addicts are not doing anything what we call offline. I mean, they might be sexting or different things like that, but they're not maybe having affairs. They're not going to massage parlors. They're not engaged in other like what we would term offline behaviors with another person or a specific person in real life although sometimes they do like sometimes they'll use porn and offline behaviors but let's talk about kind of that classic porn addict where what they're really addicted to is the porn so i do think that this is one of those things that we often get a lot of questions around like is porn bad or good? And like how often, like what makes it addiction, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, we work in behavioral addictions, right? So anything that you are trying to stop and you can't, like you cannot stop the compulsion would probably be considered like pop culture term addiction. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, like when I'm talking to clients, like it's not a moral code thing right with porn like i have ethical issues with porn as you know like as a woman who lives in a patriarchal society but like i don't know that it is like it's not a moral thing right like it's not this like quote-unquote sin that like just keeps coming up there's usually something compulsive about the pornies that we're trying to address right and there are people just like with anything else that can watch porn on occasion and not feel like it's compulsive and not feel like it's, you know, controlling their lives or, you know, affecting their relationships. 
that's not our clientele usually. Actually, we've had like an attempt to stop several attempts of shame, a lot of secrecy is causing relationship problems. Sometimes they're watching at work or like when they're on the clock or on like phones or tablets that are owned by their business, which are all pretty high risk Mm -hmm. porn behaviors. And so there's the, like what we would consider like the classic porn addict who got exposed really early, probably had some trauma in their childhood or some neglect, something that like made this a hyper focus in our childhood. And then over time, it became an addiction. And then there is what I think they're calling more contemporary Mm -hmm. addict now, where the porn itself becomes the trauma. Yeah, the repeated exposure to the graphic material. Yeah interacts with our body, our nervous system in a way that develops an addiction. Yeah. And like we've some really good research on what like blue light does to our brain on what like there's a lot of dopamine hits that we get on scrolling or on things like that that show up not just in porn, but kind of across the board. It's like how the social media algorithms work. It's right. how all of your online gambling apps are set up. Right. And so Porn utilizes that, and then it does create, like, with a highly traumatic, like, I don't know what I'm watching. I don't know, like, maybe for sexual exposure or, like, first genitalia exposure Mm -hmm. or, like, first exposure to a different orientation. Like, all of those things aligned with it's readily available. It's on social media websites, like, things like that. That in and of itself can be enough of a trauma to the brain for the brain to keep going back trying to mm-hmm. fix it. And over time, like not really over time, in a pretty short amount of time, we can have a compulsive right response to that because it's such a high yeah, mean yeah. to the brain. Or like sometimes if I have clients who maybe they're coming in for substance use issues, right? And I mean, often if they're coming to us, there's usually a pornography addiction or some type of sexual thing that's going on because that's what our marketing is geared for. But that may not come out initially, or they might not recognize it as being problematic until the substances and that substance addiction starts to subside. Then we'll see them start to talk about their sexual behavior. Even though I've asked, I usually have asked already and that's been denied. So I think sometimes like when there is the substance addiction, it kind of can mask or cover, or they're more aware that maybe that's problematic, that's addictive. And, you know, it's it's similar, like most substance users start experimenting at maybe teenage, you know, I've had some younger, but teen, early teens. And it's, you know, it, it's a gradual increase into the addiction and maybe some of the harder substances. But there are clients who started, like, did not experiment as teens, didn't experiment with like your pot or your alcohol, but went straight for some hard substances. And that's not, I don't think that's the norm, right? And it's not that that's the most yeah. common, but that happens. And they're going to have an addiction pretty quick because the substances that they are using are more potent. They're more, they're, you know, just more severe on the body and the nervous system. And and so I think there's a parallel sometimes that we see with clients with behavioral addictions that fit that contemporary mm-hmm. definition of addiction to sometimes what we see with substance users who kind of skip that experimental 
phase with some of the, like, what we think of as lesser severe substances. Yeah, for sure. And I think that addiction mirrors itself, right? This is one of the things that you and I often talk about is like, what you are using to act out doesn't actually matter. Mm -hmm. It's what's happening in the brain. Because kind of across the board, we have these neuropathways that the addiction hits. Right. And whatever you're using that hits those neuropathways that feels good, right? Um, you're going to keep using. Mm -hmm. And unless you're making a conscious decision not to. And at some point that becomes like, it's no longer your decision. The neuropathways just go there. Mm -hmm. And so you have to actively shut off those neuropathways, which is what we're talking about when we're talking about stop using poor. Right. We're talking about on a brain level, we're remapping the brain. Mm -hmm. um, and that can feel overwhelming to some people, but I also think like we do that every day, right? If we learn a new skill, if we want to change a habit, want to change a habit, you know, like we're in January. So like everyone's making resolutions and like, you know, eating better and mm -hmm. you know, going to the gym. Like all of those are shifting and changing neuropathways. I'm learning how to ski for the first time. Yeah. That is changing neuropathways. So we do that constantly. Our, our brain is constantly learning and adapting. Right. And what we are doing in recovery is teaching it to learn and adapt to right. a healthier set of behaviors or set of skills that feel more relational. Right. Which, by the way, research also shows if you're trying to switch neural pathways, right, you've got these neural pathways like with porn, going to look at porn, and you want to stop using those neural pathways, and you pair that with also learning a new skill, or, you know, we know with porn addicts, oftentimes they've foregone hobbies that they used to engage in. Maybe they haven't picked it up for 10 years, right? And then they're going back and trying to pick that up, like playing guitar or taking piano lessons or, you know, dish, different things like that, that actually that's even more beneficial for for stopping using the engagement of those neural pathways because we're already learning a new skill and that's kind of making the brain start to expand and rewire. And so that can be helpful. I mean, sometimes with our clients, that feels like a lot to tell them like, yes, in addition to stopping porn, we want you to pick up this habit or learn this new skill. But I have had clients who do that and their success rate is really good. And this is really good neuroscience kind of across, you know, like they say this about diet and exercise, right? Like fusing it with something that you already love is really helpful. But I'm also thinking about my grandmother was a chain smoker, right? Like my whole life up until a certain point, like I don't remember her ever not having a cigarette in her hand. And I remember when we were little, she would light the old cigarette off of the new cigarette so she didn't have to find her lighter. So like literally chain smoking, right? Like she's literally lighting the new cigarette off of the, the butt of the old one before it goes out. And when she gave up smoking I was an adult but when she gave up smoking she had to give up coffee at the same time mm. because those two things were fused for her and she right. could not have a cup of coffee without automatically lighting a cigarette and if she didn't have a cigarette on her she would go buy one like it was just like this compulsive thing of like coffee and cigarettes go together mm. so she gave up coffee at the same time my grandmother played piano for a long time, but she started doing um, like crocheting or things like that to keep her hands mm -hmm. busy, busy. 
And it's kind of amazing how quickly for her that shifted because I, like she had smoked since she was like 12, right? Like, and I was an adult. So we're talking about, you know, she was 60. Um, that's a 50 year old habit mm -hmm. or 50 year old addiction that she stopped within a year, which is impressive. Right. And I think that we see that a lot with porn too, when like we've used it with something that we like or something that kind of helps us process some of the reasons mm -hmm. we're doing the porn in the first place. And that's a, that's a deeper layer, right? Like when we start getting into the why we're starting to get into some of the like, what you know, our arousal template, what it was that was attractive to us. Right. right. But, but that first initial, like just getting sober, I think that there's a lot to say about creative space that we go into when we're trying to create a new habit or a new skill. You know, I've heard a lot of people say that they take up running or bike riding or journaling is one that therapists like a lot. Yeah. Because it's relatively easy. You can kind of carry your journal around with you. But watercolor, painting, uh, crocheting, right? I mean, they're all science that take up Legos. Oh, yeah. They're also things that like require a lot of like immersion in the activity, mm -hmm. right? So I don't crochet. My mom was an avid crocheter and I have friends who crochet and they will say like it does require both your hands. It keeps your hands busy, but it also requires the brain is somewhat engaged mm -hmm. because otherwise you're going to mess up a stitch or something like that, right? I don't know if they call it a stitch, but they do. Okay. I had to reach back in my childhood brain of my mom's lingo. So in that way, we are concentrating on something else. When she, a new skill does require a lot of concentration. And so we are using the brain. And, you know, like I talk with a lot of clients and I'm like, your biggest obstacle to getting sober is boredom. Mm -hmm. You're bored. And before you didn't experience boredom, because if you had five minutes, you were going to porn, you know, like, so boredom has never really been an issue for you because you always filled that space with pornography. Mm -hmm. And so now this is boredom. You're bored. It sounds like you're bored, but that's been fused with here's where I go when I'm bored. Now we have to go someplace else. And so, you know, coming up with a list and I'll usually say, you know, let's have some variety to that list. Let's do some physical activity. Sure, that's great. But what are we going to do for the emotions? And what are we going to do for intellect stimulation? Like that type of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I can't remember who said it. So there's there's a quote that always stands out to me when we're talking about boredom. And now I cannot remember who said it. So I'm going to say the quote and maybe we'll find who said it later. But it's boredom is the pathway to new worlds. Mm. And I, it was either a writer or an artist that said it because that's, you know, mm -hmm. the people that I follow in my world. But one of the things that I love about that is like boredom literally is this precipice of creating something new, right? Like every time human innovation has happened on small scale or big scale, it's because we've been bored. And I think that that's a brilliant human skill for us to lean into like that I'm bored what do I want to do versus like I'm bored zone right. I'm bored right and I watch this with my kid and she's in kindergarten so she earns screen time through like she has to do 20 minutes of reading or whatever and that's how she earns minutes for screen time 
And when she hasn't earned screen time yet and she's bored, like it's interesting to be like, I'm sorry, you don't have screen time yet. So figure something out. Like she becomes incredibly creative, right? Like I have glue in my house. Oh yeah. Glitter in days. I you know for construction paper and pipe cleaners and right. But like she's really creative. Mm -hmm. Like she can amaze what she can do with an Amazon box and glue, right? But like that's what we naturally do when we're bored, when we allow that to go. But for most of us, that boredom is so uncomfortable that we don't want to get past the boredom part into the creative part, right? And for your classic addict, right, this is the one with attachment disruptions, with some childhood trauma. You know, I've talked before in other podcast episodes about how, you know, for young kids, having awareness of how bad their situation is, is psychologically threatening. Mm -hmm. So again, if we're bored, we're going to feel things. We might have awareness of things, which is not necessarily a good thing at a young age when things are bad. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes we have that space of like boredom or like not structured time wasn't something that we could step into creatively or just kind of let our mind go because it might bump into something that then is it trying to protect us from. So, you know, sometimes we have that situation where, you know, it, I mean, it, with a lot of addictions, I will also say, I mean, this got you to where you are today. On some level, it got you through whatever you were going through. And right. we have to acknowledge that it at one point was functional or at some point it it operated in a way that got you through. Right. And, you know, we're, I, that's where I'll sometimes say to clients when we're talking about moral judgments or things, I'm like, I will say, like, I'm never going to judge you for that. Like, mm -hmm. in some ways, that saved you. Mm -hmm. And so we have to acknowledge that and also recognize you don't need that same type of saving today. Like, you're an adult, you're older you have more autonomy, you have more, you know, just ability to take care of yourself in life. And so we do have to go back and see some of that stuff and feel that. And now avoiding that or being protected from that is now causing some of the problems. Yeah. I think this is true even with contemporary addiction. The reality is like we don't live in a society that cultivates or honors or gives a lot of space to creativity, to downtime, to rest, right? Like I say that I talk about this a lot in our like you're in our groups and with our clients in the book Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert, which I want to clarify there's a lot of things take it or leave it if you like Elizabeth Gilbert or not, right? Like she's got some really good nonfiction out there. She's got some good fiction out there. But one of the things that she talks about in her stint in Italy where she's mm -hmm. eating mm -hmm. is her friend who she's learning, he's learning English, she's learning Italian. Yeah. And they're kind of in that space. He says, you know, like every country has a, a word, a value that it, or every culture has a value that it puts above everything else and Italy's is pleasure right like we don't really care about politics we don't really care about like corporations or whatever because they're all going to screw us anyway so we're going to live in 
pleasure from the day-to-day life. Like that is our value as a society. That's what we kind of hinge that on. And he said, and Americans, yours is productivity. And I think about that and what I've like, and I have mulled that over mm-hmm. over the years since I read that book. And the reality is like, we do live in a culture that does not value us as individuals, that values what we can produce for society, right? Which is also really difficult when we say that we value freedom, when we say that we value individuation, when we say that we value, you know, life, love, and the pursuit of liberty, right? And we say that, but really the underarching thing is like, how much are you producing? Right. Which, I mean, that's the American dream is predicated on you working hard. Right. For other people. Yes. Right. Right. And that's the, right. Like the self-made man is actually not as prevalent in American society as we like Mm -hmm. get to believe. But when I look at the, like a lot of us live in a society that feels very beige. Mm. And right, like we have the same routine every day. Most of us eat the same kinds of food on a regular basis. All of our fast food tastes the same, right? Like there's not a big difference between McDonald's and Burger King except the label. All the meat comes from the same place. It's all owned by corporate farms, right? And so like when we look at it, there's not a whole lot of like things that we, unless we are actively trying to find them in our society. There's not a lot of things that we actively bring us joy or bring color or bring life. And so I think that screens do that, not just porn. Well, or I would say, I mean, do screens really do that? Maybe on some level like this. I talked about the the last podcast episode, this research that was done by the Kinsey Institute on pornography, right? And they were talking about how most porn users reported that it didn't necessarily make them feel good, but it made them feel better. Yeah. And that is such a, I mean, it's a subtle distinction. Uh-huh. And some people may be like, uh, it's just semantics. But I think it's also a very big distinction. And how many of us are just trying to feel better instead of actually enjoying or feeling some pleasure and having joy and satisfaction meaning like I talk with a lot of clients about that you know and I've had varying ranges I mean you know in my career I mean I started working with substance addiction and I would have people who were like you're just up in the night like talking about meaning and satisfaction (laughs) like you know I mean I was working in an inner city gang population and I probably was up in the night talking to them about meaning and satisfaction right and the one kid was just like I have food in my fridge. What do you think is in my fridge at home? He was like 17. I'm like, I don't know. He's like, drugs. That's what's in my fridge at home. My parents and my grandparents' drugs. Okay, I might have gone too far there. <laughs> like, right. May not be fitting the, the client population with this claim. But I think so often we are settling for just whatever makes me feel better than worse. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel pretty crappy generally. This is going to make me feel better than what I normally feel. But like if we're talking about what makes you feel good, that's a whole different category. Right. Also takes longer, right? Like how many of us, how many people 
will get up, their back hurts, they take ibuprofen. They get up, their back hurts, they take ibuprofen. And this goes on for like mm -hmm. before they actually say like, I need to do something about my back. Right. Right. Like we feeling better, feeling good enough to keep going is a thing in our society. Mm -hmm. Working through pain is, mm -hmm. is a thing right. in our society. Needing help is not something that we allow in our society. Needing other people, right? Like, which again, like we're talking about relationships and vulnerability and right. things like that. And so when we're looking at porn, it makes it feel better. It's close enough mm -hmm. to something that feels warm and cozy and fuzzy mm -hmm. while also still allowing us to feel like I don't actually need a person mm -hmm. and I'm not actually having to ask for help mm -hmm. and I'm not having to disclose to anybody that I'm actually not feeling satisfied in my life. And there's a element of feeling in control that maybe they don't feel in their life than they feel in porn because I can click whenever I want out of this. I can click on what I like. I can click on what I don't like. And that's just not really... I mean, it's an illusion of making choices. Mm -hmm. It's an illusion of control and empowerment. And it's not, it's not really either. It's right. And I would like, as you were saying that, like before you got to the word empowerment, I was thinking like, it's a power dynamic, right? Like we don't actually have control over the things in our lives that we should have control mm -hmm. over, like our own satisfaction, our own ability to regulate our own relationships, right? Like relationships are really vulnerable. And a lot of times we only have control of us in our relationships. And most of us didn't grow up with the ability to like figure out how to like right. communicate with a partner about anything really. Or didn't have adults modeling healthy self-reflection and self-awareness and self-evolvement. Like we didn't have adults modeling that. So that doesn't seem like an option for us. Right. Also like for most of us, right? Like there are two sides of this, right? For most of us, sex is a means to love or sex is really, really, really vulnerable and requires us to put a lot of ourselves in it. Mm -hmm. And porn bypasses both of those, right? right? Like you don't have to be entangled with a person for the sex and you don't have to get vulnerable someone else has getting vulnerable mm -hmm. but you're not mm -hmm. and I, I think that both of those speak to wounds that we've created as a culture as and as individuals right like I think that it's it's really scary mm -hmm. to try to be in a relationship with someone and I want to be clear like I think that porn addiction ha like porn addiction happens in relationships Mm -hmm. Like, we're not talking about someone who's completely isolated in an apartment by themselves 24-7. That does happen. Right. And that is, you know, like, this is the gamut. Like, because it's about being vulnerable in relationship. And we don't do that well as a society. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, when you and I have talked about how vulnerability looks like in our lives versus how vulnerable, like, explaining that to other people right it's it, like that's just not something people do because right. it's dangerous yeah in some capacity but i do want to well i'll let you comment on that if you want to and then yeah no i was i had a lot of thoughts but i think i've lost most of them so let's talk about though because i think you know for the person who's listening and wanting to 
be like, are you guys going to talk about how to stop it? That's where I was going. Let's talk about for a minute, like, because we get this question sometimes, like, are the filters helpful? Like, you know, that makes it maybe harder to access porn. I wouldn't say it makes it impossible, but like, let's talk about the pros and cons of using that filtering software. Yeah. Okay. So I think filtering software is great if you have a kid in the home. Mm-hmm. I think you should have it if you have kids in your yeah, right. Whether there is a porn addiction or not. Yeah. You know, like in my house, we don't have filtering software because our kid is pre-locked down in terms of she has an iPad that she only has access to things that mm-hmm. we give her access to. Everything else is parental controlled. But as she gets older, like we will absolutely filter, right? Like if she starts searching things on her own. Or just as they age, there's things they right. need to be able to search. Right. And, you know, like right now her school is on a closed system mm-hmm. in terms of like schoolwork and stuff like that. I think that changes next year. And so we will have to start putting filters on her. And I think it's good for that. Yes. As a therapist, I have not seen success with it working for adults. And part of the reason is like it starts to feel like a power dynamic between you and whoever's making you do it. Mm -hmm. If you are really, really, really struggling and you need that kind of that wall that says like you're about to cross into, right, kind of like the... Or just it's it interrupts the automatic nature yeah. of it, right? Like I might have to figure out a few more steps. And yeah. If I have to figure out a few more steps, I'm not going to really do that. Right. But that porn user is not the most common porn user. Right. Right. Not the most common. But again, like if that if that helps, like if, if that immediate like disruption of cycle yeah. is enough to pull you out, then... Okay, you right. Could. right. Um, I would suggest researching the blockers that you mm-hmm. use. There have been so many that use like buddies mm-hmm. or like accountability partners or things like that where the information is just not safe mm-hmm. on, right? Like I tend to say if you are looking at a filter system, look at the ones that are more like what the schools use that don't require an accountability partner or are not affiliated with any kind of religious organization or things like that. Which means somebody's not getting a report. Yes. No one's getting a report down. No one has to write the passwords for you. Right. Yeah. It's just a filtering system. You can get those for your router and you can get those for like a software. The one that I know most commonly is like Bark and Canine, which are both used in school systems. But yeah, so like that would be my suggestion. I I think one, having an accountability partner in a filtering system does not actually require you to be accountable. Mm -hmm. It just means that you get caught, right? Like, And so that creates some dynamics that I just don't think are healthy as adults. Some people really like it. For me personally, as a therapist, I don't use it. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't like those. But again, if it does help disrupt the pattern enough, right? And if that's where you are, so that that's helpful, yeah. Then you know, I think it's a temporary. You know, when I was, I did a Google search on YouTube, so not a Google search on YouTube. Anyway, I did a search YouTube search. On how to stop watching pornography. This was maybe five months ago, right? Because I just wanted to see what was out there. And I was surprised at how many were like, hey, there's this filtering software. That's what you do. 
And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. I didn't realize that that was the fix all because I don't see it as a fix all at all. Like we're not actually fixing anything. Yeah. I mean, I think early in my career as a therapist, I thought like, oh, we have to use this. And then it didn't help. Right. And so like, or worse, it created this, you know, with a lot of clients, there is a payoff. Like the more they're clicking on different porn sites and then they find something, the higher the dopamine hit. Mm -hmm. And it almost created that. Mm -hmm. Like the harder it was to work around this, mm -hmm. the more of a dopamine hit that I got. Yeah. And so in that way, it's counterproductive. Right. And so I find if it is helpful, it's temporary. Mm -hmm. And at best, it's temporary. Right. At worst, it's contributing to the problem. Right. And again, if you have small children in your, or if you have children, if you have yes. children under the age of 18, you should have filtering software right. on your stuff. Right. While also still talking to them yes. about what they might find, because at some point they're going to be 18, 19, 20, they're going to move out of your house. And then you don't want this wide open internet that they have not been prepared for. Right. Yeah. I mean, like most of this in terms with kids is about conversations, but also like I tend to believe if we treat adults like functional adults and mm -hmm. don't pretend like we have to parent them, mm -hmm. they start to make decisions that are good for themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. I think sometimes, I, I think it, especially if we're in a relationship in which porn is an issue, one partner who's getting hurt by the porn will take on that role of like holding the accountability yeah. on her piece or whatever. And that creates a dynamic that just feels like parenting right for both people and honestly yeah. like there's a lot of damage yeah relationship adults don't want to be parented and partners don't want to be parents to their partner right so i i feel like that's a space that like i haven't had a lot of success with it i know therapists that have it's surprising to me that they have mm -hmm. and some of that may just be the way that i approach it i tend to think that like okay it's a band-aid and it may be keeping you off of it but like what are the other angles mm -hmm. where we're missing at that right. point? But again, if it's enough of a hurdle, if it's enough of a dam to keep you from like fully full send, like, okay, then use it for a little while until you can kind of get some other habits or some other right. behaviors going that feel more functional. Right. Because if your solution to stopping porn is these filters, then I'm still not addressing the underlying issues of dissatisfaction in my life. Yeah not really being a functional person in that way my trauma my you know relationship disturbances or attachment wounds like i'm not addressing all of that with a filter and so i think those issues if they are left to just prevail behind the scenes there's going to be a return mm -hmm. right there will be a return to that addiction in the meantime we might also develop other addictions mm -hmm. because Porn is not accessible, and so I actually just start another addiction or go back to or, you know, maybe I already have multiple addictions. And so I, you know, work more or I eat more. You know, sometimes there's that, like, when I stop look, viewing porn, I gain weight because I'm now using food to right, deal with those same emotions. Right. Something else that I'm going to say, and I think it's really, I mean, maybe this is uh, not helpful in the stop stopping to watch porn but i do think that most of us who are consistently numbing in our life are numbing 
because of something in our life mm -hmm. that we need to address. Right. So in my experience, when we use filters, we get more ragey. We get more angry. We get more volatile. We're meaner to our partners and our kids. And that's because we're not actually addressing why we're mm -hmm. And what used to, I'll use air quotes for this, what used to emotionally regulate us. Yeah. Because I don't think porn actually emotionally regulates us. We don't have that. So we are extremely emotionally dysregulated. Right. And... I want to clarify that because this is not just a stop using porn and everything is great issue. Mm -hmm. This is a, we stop using porn and we start to recognize like why we were using it in the first place. Right. So several years ago, maybe like five years ago now, oh, it's been five years since I've been on social. It's impressive. <laughs> uh, I got off of Facebook and Instagram completely. And... I did it as a, like, I was just overwhelmed with kind of what was happening in the world. I'm a therapist. I hear people's stories all the time. It was just a lot. It was a lot uh -huh. to hold. And so I just decided that I was going to take a, I think I decided like 90 days. I'm just going to take 90 days. And then I never went back. But one of the things that I did before that, before actually unplugging, because I had like unplugged a few times, right, where I would like get off for like a month and then get back on is I made a list of things that I wanted to accomplish and things that I wanted to learn or things that I wanted to do. And when I would feel that, like, maybe I just get back on Instagram or maybe, you know, like just to stay connected with people, mm -hmm. I would look at that list. And that list was very consistent with, I want to have meaningful relationships with the people who show up for me. And so I would usually end up reaching out to a friend or you know, maybe having a call with a friend or a, a family member that I wanted to stay in mm -hmm. contact with. And it became more meaningful, right? It became deeper. And so oftentimes I will have clients make a list. If you get to do what you want to, mm -hmm. right? Right. If you get to have the relationships that you want to, if you get to spend time um, like you want to, right? Like what's something that you want to learn, which this, this goes back to the guitar thing or like learning something new, doing something that scares you, trips that you want to take, right? And I have them kind of make that list before we stop the form mm -hmm. because I want them to be able to go back to that list and be like, oh, I have five minutes. Mm -hmm. I can journal. I can take the five minutes and look at what it would cost to get into a guitar lesson mm -hmm. right or whatever that is i can watch a five minute youtube video on right. strings or chords or whatever which shifts our brain into that learning into that space of like building a life of meaning mm -hmm. or even like more like accomplishment not necessarily productivity but i remember this was probably because I, I had younger kids at home and so to me, in my head, like things on my to-do list all took like 20 minutes, mm -hmm. at least some were longer, right? And so we might be like getting ready to go somewhere and we're all ready and we have five minutes before we actually need to leave. You know, now my husband would say, well, let's just leave and be five minutes early. And I'm like, that's crazy. But I also did not, like I had a mother who was always late because she was doing things, right? So I didn't like that graded on me. So I didn't want to do that. I think I had read something by Ralph Waldo Emerson and he had a quote in there that said, to think that we could kill time without entering eternity. Mm -hmm. And I was like, hmm, 
it, so that's going through my head, right? And so I had these like gaps of time, like five minutes, seven minutes. And I started to be like, well, I might not be able to finish it, but like I could certainly start it. And I was surprised at how quickly some of those tasks actually work, like, and how much I actually accomplished in that seven minutes. And I'm like, check, check, check off of my to-do list. I could check off like three or four things in seven minutes and be like, I don't know, this thing in my head of like, oh, it's going to take longer than I have. And it did not. Yeah. And, you know, feeling a sense of accomplishment, like just going about my day, I got these things done. And it wasn't like this to-do list that I had to like, okay, now I have to do my to-do list. And so that was also surprising to me. It just like, maybe, you know, the timing was off and we can actually get some things done and knock them out like pretty quickly. Yeah. And again, not that this is all about productivity, but I do think we need to look at like, does my life feel productive? Mm-hmm. Not in a way of like being part of this cog or this machine, but like, am I doing what I need to do? Am I taking care of me, my space, all of that type of stuff? Yeah. I mean, I also think that there's a level this, I, I see this happen a lot. And this is one place where I don't think that porn is about porn, mm-hmm. right? It's a filler for something else. But like, I am always amazed and I, I do it. Like, this is something that I have had to wrestle with in my own life and my own therapy, right? Like I will procrastinate on menial tasks for fear of failure, mm. right? Like, and I am amazed at how many people that I hear that are like, oh, I have to make a phone call for that. I'm not going to do it, mm-hmm. right? Like I have to cancel that subscription on the phone. I will just keep the subscription, right? Because there's this fear of like failure or connection or not knowing what we're doing or like whatever that is. Right. Or being told no. Or being told no. And like, I think that there are so many ways that we have like convinced ourselves that we are not able to do certain things or convinced ourselves that, right, that that needing to be perfect. I, again, Toy Story, right? Um, I have a child, so you you all get you all get that. <laughs> but in the, I want to say it's the new Toy Story, Toy Story four. There's like the Gabby doll that, like, she's an antique and she's been like on the shelf, mm-hmm. whatever. And it's this really interesting thing that like she never got played with because she had a broken um, voice box. Mm. And, but she was kind of seen as because she was in the package and like all of this, that like she was perfect. Like she was this perfectly preserved doll. Right. And I remember thinking about that and I was like, okay, like some of this is in order to be perfect, like you can't actually accomplish anything. Right. Because I mean, I played in the dirt as a kid. I have scars from like, you know, wrecking my bike and falling off horses and right. Like, once you start doing, you risk changing. Right. And that is some of this like momentum moving forward is that we are going to change. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we get stuck in that like, if I fail or if I don't accomplish something or if I take the five minutes and I can't finish, what does that mean about mm-hmm. me? And it becomes this kind of internalized struggle of, am I doing enough? And then we just know that out and go into right. my scene. Right. 
right? Like I can't be perfect. And so I'm just choosing not to be in my body. I'm choosing another life. I'm choosing a fantasy. Right. And some of what we're saying is, you know, when people are, you know, I I mean, we get phone calls, right? At like to our intake line at like two or three o'clock in the morning, somewhere between there. And I'm always, in my mind, this is somebody who just got off binging porn is, you know, to use the addiction phrase, sick and tired of being sick and tired. They're disgusted by themselves and they reach out. Probably knowing nobody's going to pick up that phone call, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, nobody does. But I think what we're saying here is if quitting porn, and this, I mean, for some people, they don't have, they have a more casual uh, relationship with pornography. So if it is difficult for you to quit porn, we're probably talking about some complexities. We're talking about addiction and yeah, I think that needs to be validating that if you could just quit it, you would. Right. Like you wouldn't be making phone calls. You wouldn't be listening to this podcast. You wouldn't be typing how to stop watching porn in the Google search bar. And so I think we have to recognize and and let that be validating that like this is actually complex Mm -hmm. and there's no like steps one, two, three, and you're good to go. Right. There's no like fix it and forget it program. Right. Right. And because that's insulting. Yeah. So, right. And so I think recognizing that, like, like with a lot of things, I think there has to be before we're removing the one behavior, we have to have done some prep work and have something ready to start to implement as we start to take away. And, you know, it's similar to like if you're, if it's January and you want to run more, you don't just get up one day and start running. I mean, maybe you do. I would never do that. But there has to be some working towards and getting prepared for. And you might need to make sure you invest in some good shoes. Or maybe you have good shoes and you've just never used them. But I think two things. We can get overly focused on the preparation that we never actually start. Or we can just start with no prep work. Both of those are going to set us up for failure. I feel like with anything that we start just starting right like we're in order to be successful we usually do some research we usually talk to people who have done it before Uh or like have some ideas right like when i started learning how to ride my bike as a kid i didn't just get on the bike and assume i knew how to do it right like when i talked to my parents i was the kid that decided that i was never going to have training wheels so i got my first bike and learned how to ride my first bike the day that i got it Ah, which is why i have scars in my legs (laughs) But right, but like I had talked to my parents about like, this is how you pedal. This is how, right? And the first thing that I would say before filters, before like making a list, right? You you can't do this alone, right? The The reality is most, the re- most of the time addiction develops in isolation. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, the way that we get out of addiction is in a relationship that's healthy. Right. And it can't be your partner, right? I don't know. That's not fair to put on them. Yeah, it's just not fair to put on them, right? Like, it's not like your partner is incapable of supporting you in that way. It's just not fair. Mm-hmm. And this, like, the reality is, like, I'm learning how to ski. My husband has been skiing since he was, like, six, right? So he's an impressive skier. I clicked into skis for the first time last week. Mm-hmm. And it's not fair to him to stay on the bunny hill with me on all of his ski days. Right. 
And it's also not fair to me to compare myself to where he's at. Right. And so sometimes like recognizing that like we can lean on our partner and say like, hey, this is where I'm at or this is what it looks like. But really, I've hired a ski instructor for that. Right. Right. I think that porn is similar. Right. Yes. You can lean on your partner. You can kind of be honest with them, be vulnerable with them, like create some repair in that relationship if it's caused some dysfunction. But like you need someone who has gone through this before, Mm -hmm. who knows what sobriety looks like, who knows what, you know, withdrawals look like. Yeah. That know how, like when you get into that dark place, how to get out. Because really like when we fall, if we don't know how to pick ourselves up, like it's hard to get up. Yeah. And sometimes people know how to do that. Yeah. And and we're going to have to recognize that there's a learning curve in this, right? right? And we need to be able to ask questions, whether that's like maybe you know of other friends who have had porn problems and they don't anymore. Mm-hmm. At, calling them up and saying, hey, how did you get through this, right? Or having a therapist or a sober coach or a sponsor or something like that. Like, what did you do when you were up against this? I think it's also like it is helpful to know when is it toughest to stick to your plan to stop using right Mm -hmm. is there a stressful situation is it anxiety and fear that that stressful situation brings up right i remember i started um january of 2019 i had been thinking about it in 2018 but like the first week of january i was prepared i had hired a swim teacher i wanted to learn how to swim i thought like and that's something I want to do. I think I would enjoy it. I really enjoy it. But I didn't, I mean, I knew like, you know, day one, he's like, have you ever taken swimming lessons before? I'm like, yeah, I might've been somewhere between four and six. And I think I did two rounds of like six weeks. Mm-hmm. So that's where we're starting, right? I have very little skill, never mastered breathing under the water. I just never mastered that. Like water always came up my nose, right? And I was amazed. Like in five minutes, I knew how to not get water up my nose. I could not do that when I was whatever age I was when I took swimming lessons, right? I never, that never clicked in for me. And I was like, in five minutes, like, look at what I learned. But I, you know, there were times where he would say, like, I'd be swimming and he's like, you know, when you hit the deep end, you go way too fast. Like your pace is off. It goes so fast. And he's like, what is happening when you hit the deep end? And I'm like, I'm scared. And he's like, what, what are you scared of? And I'm like, Jaws. <laughs> I'm the Jaws generation. He's like, sharks aren't in swimming pools. I'm like, yes, I know that. <laughs> I am a smart person. But you asked me what I was afraid of. I'm afraid of Jaws. Right. Fear is not always right. And he was just like, okay. Or there were things he'd be like, okay, you're not doing this and this. And he'd explain it. And he's like, do you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, no, no, that did not make sense. I had to be able to be like, no, I, instead of just like, yeah, yeah, I get it. I had to say like, no, I, I don't understand that. And, you know, then he'd get to be like, he'd say, okay, give me your phone. I'm going to record you. And so he would record me. And then he's like, see, it's this right here. This is what I'm talking about that you do. And I'm like, okay, can I record you? Cause like, I see what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And he'd be like, okay, yeah, yes, you can record me. And then we'd compare and contrast. And I'm like, okay, now I get it. Like, but there was a whole lot that like, you know, my people pleasing, like when he'd be like, does that make sense? And I had to just say, no, 
no. And then I could see what I was doing wrong because he recorded me, but I'm like, well, what does it look like when you do it right? I don't get that. Right. So it was this relational, you know, dynamic that we had to have for me to learn. And the lesson right after me was a kindergartner. He came from morning kindergarten to a swim lessons. And he'd always be like, you're getting so good. <laughs> I'd be like, Thank you. Have a good swim, right? As we're passing each other on the lesson. <laughs> but I just think it is going to be this relational dynamic. And you're going to sometimes not know. Somebody's going to say something. And you're like, I don't even know what that means. Right. And that takes courage to say like, I know I don't get that. And what would you do instead? I don't know what you would do instead. So I, I think we have to be willing to like be human in that mm -hmm. and acknowledge and give ourselves the grace to have a learning curve because so much in life is a learning curve. We don't know. We haven't done it or we haven't done it well. Yeah. I also think that there is a level of this, right? Where most of us were never taught like how to do those like big, scary, like, I don't know how to do this mm -hmm. relationally. Mm -hmm. Right. And in, in my experience as a therapist and I mean, as a friend, like porn becomes the place that we go when we don't know how to address things in our relationship. Mm hmm or we don't know how to address things about our sexuality, or we don't know how to address things like in attachment or like, mm -hmm. right. It, it, porn is a relational substitute for the mm -hmm. things that we don't know how to address. And so sometimes it not saying that it's our partner's fault. I'm not blaming a partner, but right. Sometimes we have to say like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to be a partner. I don't know how to be a spouse. I don't know how to be a parent. Mm -hmm. I don't know, right? Like I've never been in this moment before and I don't know how to do that. Right. But I don't want to do it alone. Mm -hmm. And for most of us, we would rather numb and do it alone than have to say like, I don't know how to do this. Mm -hmm. And that, I think that there's so much grace that can be given to ourselves if we just say like, I don't have to know. Right. I don't have to know how to do this. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll talk with clients about vulnerability being part of their recovery process, right? And sometimes they'll come in and they're like, I don't know how to be vulnerable. I don't get it. I don't know. I'm feeling this. I'm feeling that. And I'm like, this right here, that's being vulnerable. You're doing it. And they're just like, oh, this feels awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm like... But it takes so much courage to just come in and be like, I don't know what I'm doing and it doesn't feel good. And what else am I supposed to do? And like all of that, I'm like, yes, this is vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And it usually has a payoff, emotional, you know, sometimes in other areas too, vulnerability pays off, but it also doesn't necessarily feel good when we're doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it feels counterproductive to what we've been taught. Right. And vulnerability requires accountability, mm -hmm. right? Like there is a part of this process. It's, I mean, it's in every 12 steps mm -hmm. that you will do. It's part of the therapy process where you have to take an inventory of like things that you are responsible for mm -hmm. and things that you're not. Right. And you have to be able to be accountable for the things that you are responsible for mm -hmm. and let go of the things that you're not. Right. Which again comes back to the, like, if we are 
in a space where we are compulsively using porn and we don't know how to stop and it's wrecking like high-risk behaviors is happening at work it's happening we're losing sleep or it was just not like hardly participating in our life like i have that conversation particularly with my male porn users sometimes with female porn users it's a little bit different but like i'll just say like what responsibilities like at home are you neglecting and they're like i don't really have responsibilities at home well sure you do right because you live there Mm -hmm. so let's just make a list of what you don't think is your responsibility so that you're not neglecting it but like you come home from work and you're spending hours on the on your phone or your computer or your device like you're neglecting some things right and so you know being accountable there recognizing the impact on your partner the impact on you that this is having i think all of that is you know can help fuel that you know maybe we have that initial desire to stop and now we start to accumulate the reasons yeah why that would be best right and how life might look differently if I'm not spending so much of my time and energy looking at porn. Right. Which again is why long-term filters don't work. Right. Which is why like the 30-day, 90-day like Mm -hmm. cookie cutter programs don't work. Right. Like if there's something out there that says like it can cure your porn addiction, Mm -hmm. probably not. Right. Or Or it'll have some success. Like I see clients, they have, you know, a weak success, which maybe for them is a huge deal, but they don't have three weeks you know or they get a good month and then they're relapsing it's temporary yeah and i want to i also want to be clear like some of the things that you and i talk about is like it's not about sobriety for us as Mm -hmm. there is like we want you to actually like the life that you're living right when you get sober right and there's a learning curve for that like we know that as Mm -hmm. therapists that there's going to be some growing a lot of growing pains and a lot of shifts that have to happen but ultimately like the hope is that you get to a place where you're content with your life, that you have this, like, I like who I'm spending life with. I can show up as a partner. I can show up as a parent. I like how I live my life. I like how I live my life. I don't feel like I'm breaking myself for other people. I don't feel like I'm breaking myself for my job. I don't feel like I'm breaking myself. Right. Because ultimately, I think that's the only thing that holds people in long-term recovery. Yeah is that they have a life that is meaningful and satisfying and pleasurable to themselves. Yeah. And I think that there's this level where when we hear the word pleasure, we automatically think of like hedonism, Mm. especially in our culture. But the reality is like pleasure is just like living life without pain. It's like enjoying good food Mm -hmm. and enjoying good conversation and listening to music with your friends and you know, like it's about living a life in which staying in the moment isn't so mm-hmm. difficult. Mm-hmm. And I think kind of going back, circling back around to the like, how do you stop porn? I think the biggest things that we have to look at is why are we using it in the first place? Mm-hmm. And we can stop porn. Right. Right. We can get to a point where like we're not using anymore. Mm-hmm. But there's this really beautiful yummy work that happens when we stop using and we start realizing this is why I've needed it to survive to this point and I don't want to just survive anymore right absolutely so I hope this has been helpful it's not your typical like here's what you do problem solve (laughs) 
and watch our next video. That's It's not going to be that type of an answer. But I think there is value to listening to a discussion around the complexity. I think that is validating for people who are trying to tackle this issue in their life. I think recognizing it's complex, there's a lot of factors going on. And if you have had failed, multiple failed attempts, that makes sense. Yeah. And hopefully this can maybe spark a conversation in your life or spark a thought process in your life that opens you up to trying something that you haven't thought about before when it comes to stopping your porn use. Yeah. Jackie and I say this a lot. Actually, I think Jackie said, said, started saying this and then I stole it from her. Now we both say a lot. All human behavior makes sense, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. if this is something in your life, it makes sense that it's in your life. Mm -hmm. It might take time to make sense of it. Yeah. But it, we can do that. It can make sense. It can make sense. And, and that's not to excuse it. That's not to belittle it. That's just saying like, look, like you're human and all humans are trying to balance. And so if we have an extreme response in one direction, that's probably because we're out of balance in another place. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense to us. Like it, it's not a moral failing. It's not a, you know, it's not because you're broken. In fact, in, in many ways, it's because your brain is working as efficiently as it can uh -huh. to take care of you. Yes. When and being a human is hard. Yeah. It Like, it's incredibly hard being a functional adult human being, I think. And we also get that. Yeah. And there are, you know, certainly things that we can do because we don't understand that we can be functional. Mm -hmm. And so we can certainly have what we call maladaptive or dysfunctional behaviors that we don't know how to live without that. Yeah, for sure. And I think that my belief in this is that in order to live a life of meaning, it has to be your life, which is why a cookie cutter program doesn't work, right? Like, yeah, you need someone who gets you, mm -hmm. who can understand who you are, your struggles, and I do think that that's why there, I think that everybody deserves therapy, but I also think it's why having a 12 step community mm -hmm. can be really powerful because it's people experiencing similar things that you are experiencing and their stories may match yours in some ways, but you can also see the beauty of the individual showing up. Right. And I, I think that that in and of itself is a balance, right? Like you're not alone in this. And you are a fully actualized human who has the right to your own path and your own journey. And your recovery process should hold the balance to you don't have to be isolated and feel like you're a unicorn. And you also don't have to fit a, and be a cog in some machine mm -hmm. that, you know, doesn't actually fit you. Yeah. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and education and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I'm not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.